paying too much for health insurance? Frustrated by high deductibles, network restrictions, and increasing premiums? There's a better way. Christian Healthcare Ministries. CHM is a Christian community delivering a robust, faith based solution to the high cost of healthcare. If your current health insurance has become more of a racket than a remedy, take back control of your healthcare at around half the price. Learn more and enroll today at chministries.org. That's chministries.org. I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Tom Shalou. I'm Maria Bartiromo, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, September 21st, 2023. I'm Lisa Brady. Whose side are they on? The new Fox News power rankings take a deeper dive with voters before the second GOP debate. The party believes in what Trump is offering, and that is why they are solidly in his corner. And it appears to be solidly in the corner based on these, these polls, both nationally and statewide. I'm Chris Foster. More parents are asking for a say in how and what their children are taught in school and want options other than traditional public school. A lot of parents were thinking of schools the way that they were run when they were kids. And that was decades ago. And they've changed. And so when they see what's happening, they say, I didn't know that. I just didn't know that that was happening. We're speaking with Fox Business Big Money Show co-host Brian Brenberg. I'm Liz Peek. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. There's a theme on the Republican side of the presidential race, with the latest Fox polling keeping former President Donald Trump far out in front, even after four indictments, skipping the first GOP debate and planning to skip the second. Thank you all. In less than four months from now, we're going to win the Iowa caucuses in a historic landslide. I think it's going to be a landslide. You see what's going on with the polling. He held a Team Trump event at the Jackson County Fairgrounds, one of multiple visits to Iowa planned in the next month. Trump leads Florida Governor Ron DeSantis by 31 points in a Fox Business survey of Iowa caucus goers. But Nikki Haley's support has doubled since July. She's now in third place in that Iowa poll. The former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador also makes a move into fourth place in the new Fox News power rankings, though she's on the losing side of a different metric, populist or conservative. Is it populist or conservative to say, I think every state in the country should have voter ID? Haley telling Fox Business. There are things that I say that are populist. There are things that I say that are conservative. When the media decides to label you, they get it wrong every time. At the end of the day, the only thing I care about is what the American people want. The candidates considered populist, Trump, DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy, have the top three spots in the power rankings and taken together have support from 84 percent of Republican primary voters, led by Trump with 60 percent, while those considered more traditionally conservative Haley, former Vice President Mike Pence, and Senator Tim Scott have a combined 11 percent. Recent polling also finds Republican majorities supporting populist positions in three key areas. On foreign policy, to concentrate on issues at home. On spending, more favor keeping Social Security and Medicare the same than reducing the deficit. And many lack trust in the federal government. Donald Trump remains the frontrunner and then some in this race both nationally and in the state polls that Fox released yesterday in Iowa and South Carolina. Arnon Mishkin is director of the Fox News Decision Desk. He remains a dominant figure. It's basically Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, that's, I think, the real headline. There has been some movement amongst the challengers um, for the nomination. Um, 
no one has emerged as the the significant number one challenger to Donald Trump. But clearly, you know, Ron DeSantis continues sort of in second place. Vivek Ramaswamy has done a apparently a very strong job in the debate. It's interesting. A lot of the pundits um, who watched the debate, the professional watchers, looked at it and thought he was eaten alive by um, Nikki Haley and and or Mike Pence. Um, but the voters did not think so. And in the polling, you saw that he actually gained strength. Um, on the other hand, he did gain a certain segment of the Republican Party that says not him. Um, but he's still sort of number three. And then I think the one of the big winners of the first Fox debate in the Republican nomination this time was Nikki Haley, who did clearly very well um, in attacking uh, Ramaswamy and, and positing her position and her experience as former governor and a former ambassador to the U.N., um, and then um, taking up the field, uh, Tim Scott, who had seemed to catch some fire before the debate, didn't seem, you know, he's still sort of not doing as well as some people thought he might do. And Mike Pence, who clearly has, you know, he stays there, you know, sort of in his place, but he's articulating a message, but it seems that the messenger is not being accepted so far by the voters. Hmm. What are the voters saying about Ron DeSantis? Because he keeps sort of sticking around as number two, but a distant second to Trump. So what, you know, is there any indication that he has found a way to at least start chipping away at that gap? Or is there an indication of, you know, what he's doing wrong, per se, that that he isn't chipping away at that gap? There's no evidence from the polling of what he's doing wrong. You know, he emerged in the um, in 2022 as the solid alternative to Donald Trump because he articulated a very solid um, Republican message, um, a message that was consistent with the populist wing of the Republican Party or sometimes called the MAGA wing of the party, um, but also fairly consistent with the, the more traditional conservative wing. And he was also seen as a very solid campaigner who was had done was doing really well in Florida, a state that used to be considered a swing state. So um, he, and he was acceptable to all. And so he was like the perfect alternative to Trump um, in the event that Trump decided not to run or for whatever reason could not run. Um, but I can't explain why he hasn't really taken off the way some people thought he might, other than to say that he he's not, um, as one conservative columnist put it, he's not fun. And Donald Trump is fun. Donald Trump is someone people enjoy watching. Um, Donald Trump is a good campaigner. Whatever you think of his politics, whatever you think of his policies, he's someone who is very engaging with the audience. And uh, Ron DeSantis, not so much. These power rankings do show the candidates considered populist collectively are dominating the polling among GOP primary voters compared to candidates considered more traditionally conservative. Are you surprised at such a big gap? You know, I... I, frankly, I am surprised as as an individual. Um, on the other hand, basically, you know, Donald Trump has remade the Republican Party um, and he's remade the Republican Party into a populist institution, an institution that is is very much opposed to uh, foreign engagement or foreign wars or and what they used to call endless wars um, is opposed to sort of giving more support to the Ukrainians in their in the war uh against this russian invasion um is very much supportive of the entitlements 
um, at the, you know, even the, the, the need to support Social Security, need to support Medicare, as opposed to cutting the deficit, which is, you know, and those two things, having a strong defense, trying to deal with the government spending and, and the deficit, were always sort of the, the mantra of the Republican Party, basically from Ronald Reagan onward. Um, and Trump changed all that. And I think he, he didn't just change it for himself. He changed it for the party. And so right now you have about 80 percent of the parties in the Republican Party seems to be supporting candidates with that populist message. And the candidates who articulate a more conservative message, people like Nikki Haley, uh, Tim Scott and um, former Vice President Mike Pence, they articulate it very well, but it doesn't have the kind of audience that it had in the early 80s and, and the 90s when um, it, the message was articulated by candidates, you know, President um, Reagan, Bush and Bush. I mean, that's just the reality of the party today as we've seen it. Hmm. Does that populist popularity make it that much harder for anyone to really challenge Trump for this nomination? That's a really good question. I, I think that may summarize it all which is that the party believes in what Trump is offering. And that is why they are solidly in his corner. And it appears to be solidly in the corner based on these, these polls, both nationally and statewide. Um, and that um, it's not as though there's, they have any exceptions to that. And so, um, you know, the, the notion that, that uh, people might sell a um, uh, Trump policies without Trump which is basically what DeSantis was was offering, what uh, Mike Pence clearly is offering, um, and what Nikki Haley to a certain extent is offering, that doesn't have the kind of traction um, because he has so articulated the message, the populist message, that I think a lot of voters in the Republican Party seem to be buying right now. If you take examples of populists who've won in the past, and even if we argue that President Reagan might fall into that category. You know, Reagan Republicans, so to speak, are now considered establishment, right? So does, does this kind of go, you know, like a pendulum? I think so. I think that, that you know, people vote, people vote their pocketbooks. Who's going to make me safer? And I think that there's an element to the um, Trump support that comes from the belief amongst Republicans that Donald Trump particularly prior to COVID, delivered for America a stronger economy, a stronger position in the world, and the right message, if you will, that made people feel um, wealthier, safer in their homes, safer in the streets, safer in the world. And and that that's what this is reflecting. And I, I saw a poll um, recently that asked voters on the general election, uh, Trump versus Biden. They asked the people who said they were voting for Trump um, what do you, you know, why are you voting for Trump? And 95 plus percent said things were just better when he was president. And I think that that's articulates a sort of nostalgia for the Trump world and an nostalgia that I would say is a pre-COVID Trump world and a belief that we can return to that if Donald Trump is president again. I think that's what we're seeing in the in the, you know, immovability of the Trump support so far in the polling. Could this be an Achilles heel for Republicans in the general election, though, either by dividing the party or fueling, you know, more Democrat criticism of, of an extreme MAGA agenda? 
That's the $64,000 question. A lot of reporters are now saying the elites in the Republican Party don't want Donald Trump to be the nominee, but the public, the voters do. And, and the opposite is true in the Democratic side, where the elites basically think Biden is the nominee. And a lot of Democratic voters say we think he's too old. I understand why the elites on the Republican side are saying Trump might be a weaker candidate. I'm not totally I, I, I can make that argument. I can also make the other argument, which is that if Donald Trump is the nominee, there'll be a lot of enthusiastic Republicans who are uh, coming out to vote for him. And while it might not be enough to win the presidential election, it certainly might help the Republicans down ballot. Just want to ask you one other thing about two candidates who tend to be more mild-mannered, if you will, and seem to be having a hard time gaining traction, former Vice President Mike Pence and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Are voters not responding well to their messaging, um, especially in Scott's case, you know, sort of positive messaging, um, or are they just not getting the message? That's a really good question. I think that all the three sort of establishment challengers, um, Haley, um, Scott, and Pence, are fighting for a small part of that, um, uh, of the primary electorate. It's possible one of them, right now it looks like it could be Nikki Haley, will catch fire a bit um, and sort of basically box the other two out and be the establishment voice. And maybe that'll help her or whoever becomes that voice. But I think that's one of the things I'm going to be looking for in next week's debate um, in California to sort of see, does anyone really yet emerge? And so far, no one is really emerging. I mean, Nikki Haley sort of caught a little bit of fire, a spark. And Vivek uh, Ramaswamy has caught a, a lot of fire because of his strong performances. But no one is sort of figuring out a way to unify the, the non-Trump uh, wing of the party. And um, and that's that is a challenge and clearly an opportunity for former President Trump. Fox Business and Univision, of course, hosting that second GOP debate Wednesday, next Wednesday, September 27th at the Reagan Library in California. Fox News Radio will provide special coverage beginning 7 p.m. Eastern that night. Foxnewsradio.com to listen or for more information. And for now, Arnon Mishkin, director of the Fox News Decision Desk, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Lisa, for having me. This is Liz Peek with your Fox News commentary coming up. More parents are asking for choices when it comes to where their kids go to school. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says he'd give it to them if elected president. We have universal school choice in the state of Florida, and we need it nationwide. Arizona is another state that provides vouchers to parents for private school tuition. Arizona Education Association President Maricel Garcia has said expansion of that program will hurt public schools. It means that we will continue to be underfunded. Educators will be fleeing the state. They're going to go to places where they feel respected and valued. But I also think what that means is the students of Arizona are not going to get every opportunity that they deserve. Besides private schools, there are about 7,800 charter schools in the country, up about 50 percent over the last decade, according to the National Association for Public Charter Schools. A Stanford University study out this summer finds they're outperforming traditional public schools. Students who are enrolled in charter schools get more learning in a year's time in both reading and mathematics than they would have gotten had they gone to their local district schools. Mackie Raymond's director of the Center for Research on Education Outcomes at Stanford. Charter schools are different from private schools. Most charter schools are actually publicly funded and they have some 
oversight from the district in which they operate. Brian Brenberg is co-host of The Big Money Show on Fox Business, weekdays 1 p.m. Eastern. It's hosting a live audience town hall today, September 21st, called The Big Money Playbook education in America. The whole point of a charter school is let's loosen up some of the requirements a little bit. Let's allow the school to do things a little bit differently and see if that can produce better results for whoever their target market is. And some of it is, um, I assume, the freedom in hiring and firing, right? I mean, there's a lot of criticism about teachers' unions making it difficult to get rid of underperforming teachers. On the other hand, they maybe protect teachers who could come under political pressure. Yep, exactly. I mean, You know, there are a lot of teachers who do great work. Mm -hmm. There are some teachers who have played the seniority game so well that they can stay in the system, but they're just not in it to win it. Charter schools often get the opportunity to have more latitude in hiring and firing decisions, but they get latitude beyond that, too. So their school day could be longer. They could have a greater degree of curriculum or a wider span of curriculum than a normal school has. You know, a lot of public schools run according to very strict guidelines that are set by teachers' unions in their negotiations. And a charter school says, we're going to go outside of that. If you want to teach at this school, it might give you the opportunity to do some things you haven't done before. But it might also mean you're going to have to do some things that you didn't have to do in the traditional setting. And the idea is if you give kids something different, maybe if you lengthen their day a little bit, they can produce results that we haven't seen in a traditional school. Because they're publicly funded, these charter schools, you can't, my understanding is that you can't um, make kids test in or whatever. Like if you if you have more, right. if you, like you had, it has to be as equitable as, as the it's public. Open. It, it's going to be open. If, yes. if you, and if you have fewer spots than kids that want to go, you got to have a lottery. Yeah. So what you get is a lottery system. It's not a tryout. You're not proving how qualified you are for the school. But because of the limited space, oftentimes it's just luck of the draw, which in some cases is even worse, actually, because if you could really demonstrate a need and really a desire to want to be in the school and work hard, that might be the best fit. But oftentimes all you can do is play the the golf, you know, the the ping pong ball and the machine game. And that can be very frustrating for people who really want to exit their existing situation and just feel like they can't do it unless they get really lucky. I mean, the argument against allowing, say, a test-in system or whatever it is, is then that's going to just keep a cycle of the public school performing worse. Because if you take the smartest, most motivated kids out of there, then the kids who are left behind are going to be in a worse school than they were before. Yeah, the point is you're trying to help a lot of people who are behind. And so them trying to show how ahead they are to get in doesn't really work very well. But You know, charter schools, depending on your state, can often be very limited in the number of spots that a state will free up for charter schools to open. And that's where you get the lottery situation. I think somebody in the lottery situation might say, well, I'd just love if there are more charter schools. I'd love if there are more options so that it wasn't luck of the draw, but it was actually me choosing between options out there. This newer study at Stanford showing that charter schools outperform generally Mm. public schools differs from the couple of studies they've done before that. Yes. The first study was either inconclusive or showed that overall charter schools maybe did a little bit worse, yep. uh, maybe better in urban situations. But now it's, it's, it's clear that there does seem to be an advantage to charter schools. Have they just gotten better? This is, I think, the key difference, or here, this is sort of the key part of the formula. So charter schools have more latitude to try things. A charter school opens and it has a theory about what can work, right? And it might be right and it might be wrong. It's likely in the early days that a lot of the things they think are going to work are going to be wrong, which is why you might not see results that massively outperform existing schools. But they have a little more latitude to say, okay, well, we got that wrong. Let's try something else. And so they're iterating to a better outcome over time. Got it. 
versus a public school that maybe says, well, this is the way we're going to do it. This is what the contract says. This is what leadership requires. This is what's baked into state standards or something. So if, and we've so got to go down the same road. How do charter schools work in suburban or especially rural populations where you just don't have the, the density of kids? Charter schools are just one form of alternative schooling. And I agree, they, they probably are going to work best in areas with concentrated population because it's, it's easier to draw teachers, it's easier to draw students. What you see in rural areas is something usually a little bit different, more of like a homeschool co-op micro school situation where you're not a, a formal charter school. Maybe you've chosen to get outside of that environment entirely but you're still doing things together. And in those situations, what you often have is you don't have like one teacher teaching one grade. You have a teacher there teaching at multiple grade levels, kind of moving from student to student and saying, okay, where are you today at your particular grade level? Where are you? So it's a much more tailored, much more fluid, much more flexible situation. You know, it's almost like a one-room schoolhouse. I was going to say, it's like, like a return to the one-room schoolhouse where, uh, you know, Little House in the Prairie, there's got one teacher and a bunch of kids of a bunch of different ages. Yeah, so we, America moved away from that in the early 20th century. Schools kind of adopted the industrialization model that you were seeing in the economy, and the one-room mm-hmm. schoolhouse didn't fit that because you didn't get the economies of scale in the one-room schoolhouse. What we're finding actually is there's less scale in schooling sometimes than you think, and that one-room approach has a lot of advantages. One is the flexibility of teachers. Two, actually, is just students of different ages being together. There's some value in that, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, as a young kid getting to see where the older kid's going, as an older kid kind of taking a little responsibility for the younger kid, and that's hard to quantify, but it turns out to be pretty valuable. Going through the courts now, in Oklahoma City, somebody wants to start a a religious publicly funded Mm. charter school. That's a completely different question. It's the same notion where you're talking about trying different methods, having different curriculums. But if that curricula Mm -hmm. um, brings religion into it, then there's going to be a legal argument about taxpayer money going toward that. Yeah. And I don't know those. I mean, I'm not the constitutional lawyer here. Mm -hmm. I I do think those legal arguments against it are sort of problematic because I don't think a privately run, or even with some public money going back to parents, uh, faith-based institution is necessarily an establishment of religion. Okay. That's sort of the constitutional question. Yeah. And it's, and to me, again, it's, it's particularly non-problematic in an environment where you have a lot of competition. So there might be a, a Christian school over here and a Muslim school over here and one that's not based in either one of those traditional faiths over here. Look, if you can take your money and go to any one of those schools, you know, it's that's clearly not the state establishing religion. It is giving you the opportunity to practice your faith in an educational environment, which is attractive to a lot of parents, yeah. frankly, who care about like a values-based education. Yeah. So, again, I'm not going to legally rule on that, but I do think we've overinterpreted what the Constitution prohibits mm-hmm. there, and I, I think there's room for that conversation. Education is shaping up to be one of the topics, the big topics of the yeah. 2024 election. It may bubble up to be the topic, depending on where we are with the economy. You know, if you're a parent or not a parent, have school in, in preparing for this town hall. Yeah. And talking to people, what concerns do parents have? What concerns do kids have? Let's not forget about them. Yeah. Um, and maybe sometimes we do. And, and have schools gotten worse or is this just how much of this is politics and how much of it is schools legitimate concerns? Right. I, I think what has happened is, I, you know, I think schools have have gone down a certain path. I don't think there's any question that there there's certain kinds of 
ideological issues that have crept into school curriculum more in recent years than in previous years. But I don't know that it was like a cliff or anything. It's just, I think the big thing for parents was COVID, the the pandemic just created this very odd situation where they got an atypical window into what happens in their education. It's all they got. And they just, a lot of parents were thinking of schools the way that they were run when they were kids. And that was decades ago and they've changed. And so when they see what's happening, they say, I didn't know that. I just didn't know that that was happening. And I, I might have some problems with it, which is why they then started going to school board meetings and saying, didn't know you were doing this, but I, I got a question about it. I want to I talk about it. And they're obviously more heated than that in some situations. Yeah. But I think that's – parents got caught off guard because they'd kind of assumed I can outsource my child's education. That's, that's what the schools are they're, for. They're the professionals. They're the professionals. I think I know what they do. And if it turns out that they're not doing that, um, I get a little bit nervous. You know, and then you've got of late some of these questions of just parental rights. Like, what say do I get? What do I get to know about my kids' choices or what they're saying at school and what the sc- how the school's treating them? And and there again, I think a parent just, you know, na- when you're a parent, you naturally feel like I- I'm the, you know, the buck stops here. <laughs> I'm the parent. Uh, if it's a big issue, I feel like I got to be in the loop on this. And in a lot of cases, we've interviewed some parents on our show who've just said, I had no idea. Mm. And all of a sudden, my kid's life had changed, and I was out of the—I was the one person out of the loop on that. That makes—you know, as a parent myself, I'd get very nervous about that. I assume you guys are going to talk a little bit about the learning loss and how—you know, I don't know how long it takes for that to get outgrown or if it can. Well, you know, you're seeing some research uh, saying, look, kids need four, four and a half months or something of just dedicated schooling to get out of the deficit that they're in right Mm -hmm. now. I don't don't know if that's right. I mean, that's very hard to say, but people do feel like their kids are behind. And and what frustrates them, I think, is when it still feels like in a lot of situations, the focus of the school is on non-academic subjects. And they're just saying, ah, my, my kids got to read at grade level or they got to do math at grade level. And that's just not happening in a lot of places. So yes, learning loss matters. And, you know, we're, a, we're the big money show. I mean, we're an economy focused show. And, and just when you think about the economy and the, the strength of the U.S. economy, the opportunities for prosperity, we've got to have kids who can compete on a, not just at a national or regional level, but at a global level. And that's a problem. Fox business network's been doing uh, education topics for a few days now. Uh, on the Big Money Show, uh, the Big Money Playbook, Education in America, uh, a town hall at 1 p.m. Eastern today. Brian Brenberg, co-host of the Big Money Show, Fox Business, weekdays, 1 p.m. Eastern. Thanks, man. Good talking. Thank talk you. you. Appreciate it. Meet the American who wrote the Pledge of Allegiance. The Pledge of Allegiance, an American staple, appeared for the first time on September 8, 1892, in the National Children's Publication, The Youth's Champion. But who is the man behind the ode to the country? The Patriotic Pledge was written by Reverend Francis Bellamy as an optimistic promise to unite the growing nation. He was born on May 18, 1855, in Mount Morris, New York, to Baptist minister Reverend David Bellamy and Lucy Clark. As a child, Bellamy rose through the public school system before receiving an education at the University 
city of Rochester. The orator was a self-proclaimed socialist, yet an advocate of American individualism. Bellamy felt that just talking about patriotism in schools wasn't enough. He urged the National Education Association to make the highest ideals of American citizenship a part of the nation's curriculum. He told the NEA that true Americanism is the joyous sense that America must be another name for opportunity. The association ensured that the Pledge of Allegiance made its way across the nation, and soon the nationalistic number was recited in nearly every schoolroom from sea to shining sea. I'm Gianna Gelosi. Go to the lifestyle section at foxnews.com to find more of these incredible American stories. I'm Dana Perino. Join me for my brand new podcast, Perino on Politics. As we analyze the 2024 election cycle, make sure you subscribe to this series on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts and leave me a rating and review. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Liz Peek. What's on your mind? Democrat John Fetterman is not just a prime example of arrested development. He is a symbol of the dumbing down of standards and expectations that is undermining our great nation. The Pennsylvania senator is so uncomfortable wearing the normal garb of successful people who occupy important roles in our society, a suit and tie, for example, that Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has relaxed the Senate's dress code, apparently to accommodate this slovenly member of that august body. The elimination of the Senate's dress code is the least of our problems. Much more worrisome is that the same lowering of standards is taking place everywhere, often in the name of equity or racial justice. Educators across the nation are ditching tests and grades, prompted by declining performance and self-serving teachers' unions complicit in that decline. In Portland, Oregon, for example, authorities are considering new quote, equitable grading practices, unquote, which would no longer penalize kids who cheat or who skip their homework because, quote, historical data shows racial disparities in students' pass-fail rate, unquote. Bowing to the lowest common denominator in education is hurting our kids. It's also undermining law enforcement. On his third day in office, New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg published a list of crimes he would no longer prosecute, like trespassing, resisting arrest, or turnstile jumping, crimes that apparently Mr. Bragg felt were inconsequential and for which people should not be held accountable. Inconsequential to whom? It certainly matters to the law-abiding citizens of New York if someone is threatening their neighborhood and consequential to the subway system that an increasing number of passengers are riding for free. Did he think refusing to prosecute people for resisting arrest would make the job of a city cop easier or safer? The idea that we should hold people and children to account and to high standards may seem old-fashioned, but look around. Is this new era of licentiousness helping our country to prosper? John Fetterman is the poster child for celebrating mediocrity. He lived off his parents until the age of 49 and has had one job of substance, mayor of a small town that actually shrank under his watch. Mainly, he was elected because some voters in Pennsylvania decided his opponent— a brilliant heart surgeon, was tarred by his association with former President Donald Trump. Fetterman is not important. What is important is that America wake up and jettisons the policies and programs that are debasing our country. Let us strive for excellence and set our standards high. Only then will we fulfill our potential. This is Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and columnist. 
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.